came ready to preach today, so I hope you're with me today, church. But I am I'm excited. We're in this collection of uh, weeks that we're stringing together to preach the message, the secret to a good life, the secret to a good life. Because we live in a world where everybody is constantly trying to uh, trade the good for the great. And we're realizing that that's not always uh, the best deal, that oftentimes when we started out with good, that was, that was not meant to be a stepping stone. That was not meant to be a consolation prize. That is hitting the jackpot, to be given what is good. The first blessing God ever spoke was to call something he created good. And so we're rediscovering the power of good. And we're learning to lean into what he has given to us that cannot be upgraded, that doesn't need to be improved, right? We walk around the stores of a grocery store, and everything's double strength, new formula, 173% stronger, right? Like toothpaste so full of bleach, your teeth will just fall out the second you brush with it. Like everything's like, it can't always be 2x. It doesn't always need. And, and we're learning, if you were with us last week, to, uh, to, to sort of look back to the old light bulb that doesn't need to be tweaked with. Because the new 1,000-hour burnout is not where we want to be. We want to be at that million-plus hour, that century light bulb, the light of the world that Jesus has given to us. And so we're realizing that there's some stuff to be had in this life that, that doesn't need to be tinkered with. Because as it was created originally, it was perfected. We're learning to love what God calls good. And if you have a Bible, uh, Micah 6 and Genesis 18 is where we're going to be today. I want to preach to you a message that I'm calling Friends with Benefits. Friends with Benefits, what I want all the teenagers listening to not have, I want to preach to you today, (laughs) Friends with Benefits. Micah chapter 6, verse 8 is really the theme for this whole week uh, and next week and this whole uh, trilogy of messages here. Micah 6, 8 says, he has showed you, we spent some time with this last week, O man, what is good? He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And we pointed out last week that Micah, who is the one who pointed to Bethlehem. And when we hear Bethlehem, we think about two shepherds. We think about King David, the great shepherd king, who was watching his flock in Bethlehem. And Micah is saying that there is another shepherd that's going to come from the city of Bethlehem, the second shepherd, the good shepherd that Micah points to. He is the one who is good. He has shown you what is good. Because so many of us look to our religious accomplishments or the good things that we can do as, to be enough to save us, to be enough to heal us. And he says, that's not going to help. That's not going to work. It's never, it's like, that's like uh, trying to gather the whole ocean in a, in a beach bucket. It's just not going to work. So how do you get right with God? He has shown you, oh man. What is good? And the only one who is fully good, perfectly good, is your good shepherd. He has shown you what, how do you get to good. That's Jesus. And once you get there, you don't need to upgrade anything. You don't need to improve anything. If you have Jesus, you have everything. You can't have more than Christ. And so what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. These things are meant to be a part of our lives. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But I also want to point your attention to Genesis 18 as a picture of what this looks like, of what this good life lived out looks like. It's a story involving 
a man that you know if you're at all familiar with scripture, and that is uh, Abraham. Abraham had a wife named Sarah. They both uh, were originally named Abram and Sarai. But as God rerouted their lives, he changed their names to reflect their callings. And so Abraham and Sarah uh, were, even though they were super old, that God said, you're going to have a baby. And that baby is going to lead to an entire nation, an incredible, amazing nation that's going to be positioned to be a blessing to the world. Now, of course, in God's, I don't know, I don't know what to call it unique style. He chose to give them that promise 25 years before he intended for it to come to pass. And during that time, what? Doubting? During that time, wondering? During that time, them attempting to go from good to great in their own hands, trying to to accomplish what God? I think he was giving them a chance to trust him. And we've said before throughout our ministry that oftentimes God gives a dream but then makes it seem like it's not going to come to pass to see if you're more focused on the dream or the one who gave the dream. And during those intervening years, he asked the question, how bad do you want it? Are you willing to wait for it? Are you willing to follow me? Are you going to give up? Are you going to get antsy? Are you going to get senioritis and spring fever and, and bail on me? And during that time, he develops our character because he wants our character to be so strong and so rooted that when the fruit that he intends to come out of our lives is, is finally on the branches, that we don't fall over. We've all seen trees that didn't pass a windstorm test. And he wants there to be roots deep down so that you have so much fruit on you, that you have so much blessing on you, you can't even contain it, and it doesn't destroy you. It doesn't cause you to be puffed up with pride. It, you, you remain perpetually humi- humble because you were ready for it. You were like a glacier that what you can see above the water was just a tiny percentage of what was below going on, holding you up. And so that's that 25 years of waiting. But it's finally come to an end. So God wants to come down and basically be like, hey, stork's coming. And he could have told them that any number of ways. But the way God, God's unique style, can we agree? Unique style? Style points, right? Like in a snowboarding contest, flare points for days. That's God, right? So when God wants to communicate that to Sarah and Abraham, basically by this time next year, you're going to have that baby in your arms. What he chooses to do is to have three physical beings, three men, show up at their tent in the heat of the day and just come walking up to Abraham's tent. And he's just chilling in the doorway, trying to be in a shady place. And all of a sudden, three people come. Now, as the story, by the time the story ends, what we realize is that those three people was God represented somehow in a human body. And before Christmas, all right? Weird. We just admit it's weird. Um, and then two angels. And those three are coming to, to give Abraham and Sarah the news, like, hey, baby's on its way, about to be here any minute, basically. A year from now, you're going to be holding this baby in your arms. But God also had some other things to do while he was coming down on the earth, OK? He wanted to send these two angels to enact judgment that had been brewing and brewing and brewing and brewing and brewing for a city called Sodom for a very long time. Now, one of the things when you read the Bible that maybe we'd be tempted to like blush away from is something as intense as judgment. But what I want you to understand is that God had been holding back judgment on the city for as long as he possibly could. In fact, one of the interesting things that God says to Abraham in Genesis 15 early on when you meet him is he says, your people out of Isaac, your child, are going to be this great nation. And they're going to live in this land of Canaan. But they can't, they can't live here. For, they're going to have to move out to Egypt for 400 years. 
and then they're going to be brought back. Now, this all came true, prophetically speaking, under Joseph. The children of Israel were, were slaves, right? And then they come back with Moses and finally get to Shittim and get to cross over to Gilgal with a, with a dude named Joshua. But he says to Genesis, in Genesis 15 to Abraham, they're going to have to stay in Egypt for 400 years because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete, meaning there's going to be judgment brought on the Amorites who will live there, and Joshua and the children of Israel are going to fight them, and they'll be judged. But the iniquity of the Ammonites is, Amorites is not yet complete. It's one of those verses that you could overlook it, but it's, it's, it's packed with meaning because God's saying, I need to give them 400 more years to repent before I bring judgment on them. Do you see that? How, how we, we could easily characterize when we read a verse about judgment as God just like flippantly becomes mercurial and it goes bipolar and just bang, brings judgment down and flips like a switch on. But no, the iniquity, I need, they need 400 more years before I bring judgment. So when you read in the conquest of the promised land, this crazy judgment, he held it back for 400 years, giving them space to repent, giving them a chance to turn from their wicked ways before the judgment came. So anytime we see God acting in any way that's bringing his judgment hand, a hand of discipline or a hand of, of his wrath finally being released, what we don't see is the, the previous decades and even centuries where he waited, waited, waited. The Bible says God does not delight in the death of the wicked but he gives them every day the opportunity to, to, and space to repent. And so in this moment, Genesis 18, judgment's finally about to come to Sodom. But even then, God's not going to do it without first sending two angels to check and see if indeed what he knew to be true of it was still true of it. Now, most unnecessary thing I'm ever going to say to you, he didn't need to send two angels down physically to check and see if it was as bad in Sodom as he had heard for the last several hundred years while he was waiting to be judgment upon them. This is, in fact, just him holding back judgment as long as he possibly could. And so, of course, God, it's just when you read Genesis 18, you're like, you need to tell the patriarch he's going to have this baby. You need to do a scouting mission that's pre-judgment while you just give them even just a tiny, you're just like dragging your feet before judgment finally is unleashed. And so, of course, you're going to multitask and batch these things together. It's like the Uber pool. You can pick Uber X, you can pick Uber Black, or you can pick Uber Pool, where your Uber picks up anybody else that, on the way to get to them. And you're in, like, not only do you have a strange driver, you have other strange people on your, on your mission. Like, that's the most stressful thing I've ever thought of in my life, to be a part of someone else's shenanigans in an Uber. You know what I'm saying? So this is essentially God's Uber pool. He sends these three, which is himself, and two angels to Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's like, oh, 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 I need to swing by Abraham's on the way. And it's, it, you just read this chapter. And it's, I'm not going to read to you when the three men show up. And Abraham, like in the Middle Eastern hospitality, which was the norm then, like, is like, oh, are you guys hungry? What can I get for you? And he's like, Sarah, bake some bread. Tells his servant, kill the fatted calf. He's like, I have a sneaking suspicion this might be my creator. I'm not sure. But it's just amazing. And so they have this meal, and they tell him they're going to have the baby by next year. Abraham, who's baking bread in the other room, laughs when she hears right, that her super old womb's going to have a baby in it. And she laughs. And then God's like, hey, why'd you laugh? And she's like, I didn't. And he's like, yeah, but, but you did. And it's really awkward and intense. And they end up naming the baby Isaac, which means laughter, which is not like a real huge compliment about her. right? And it's just, it's, I love the Bible. Um, so then the, the two angels and God get up. And God's like, all right, these two have to go on a mission. And, uh, and, and, and this is where we're going to jump in now. It says, when the men get up to leave, they looked toward Sodom. And Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. 
He's just being courteous, walking them as far as he can, going above and beyond to get them like down to the road, make sure they know the right turn towards Sodom. Then look at this, verse 17. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? He says, with Abraham standing there to these other two people, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Because Abraham will surely become a great nation and a powerful nation, and all the nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him. This is, if you circle stuff in your Bible, highlight in your U version, highlight verse 19, because we're going to come back to it. For I have chosen him so that he, look at this, will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and doing what is just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Do you see what he's saying there? He said that the way Abraham leads his family and the way his, his family after him leads their families, the way his children after him leads their children is going to be how I bring about the promise I originally made to Abraham. That's saucy, and we're going to come back to that. Verse 20, the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is, is, is so great and their sin is so grievous, meaning in this word outcry, by the way, it's the same word that when Cain killed Abel in the book of Genesis, and Abel's blood was on the ground, and God said to, to Cain, your brother's blood has been crying out to me from the ground. Same exact word. So he's, he's saying, I have to deal with this, because for so long I've waited, but this, this that's happening in the city is crying out to me from the ground. Verse 21, so I said, I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know, and I won't have to judge. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? We really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far, far be it from, from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I, bless you, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes. What if the number of the righteous is less than 50 by 5? Will you also destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find 45 there, God said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. He said, well, what if only 40, 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry with me. Let me speak one last time. What if only 30 can be found there? He said, I will not do it if I find 30. Abraham said, now, now I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord. What if only 20 could be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I would not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. <laughs> what, what, he's like, Abraham could be a used car salesman. I am telling you right now. <laughs> what if only 10 could be found there? He answered and said, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. And Jesus, I pray in these moments as we consider your word, that you would speak to us, you would ignite something in us. We pray we would hear from you. We pray that the lost would be found.
I pray that the found would remember what it felt like to be lost. And I pray that by your spirit, when we walk in the power of this word, we would see the world change. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first car accident I ever got in was pulling out of a parking spot at an ice cream store. Do you remember this? You were with me. We were at Cold Stone Ice Cream in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I was pulling out of the parking spot, and I did everything right except for check uh, behind me. And <laughs> I rear-ended this, this lady pulling through. Luckily, she was kind. We exchanged insurance, insurance information. The dent wasn't too bad. Of course, we paid for her car through the insurance, paid that you know, deductible, and then got the dent pulled out of my car using some you know, manner of things that now you could find on YouTube to do what I paid a body shop to do. But, but the reason we were at the ice cream shop was to spend a gift certificate that some friends had given to us. Uh, we had these friends named Tom and Christy Willis, and they owned that particular Cold Stone ice cream store. And what I remember about that season of life is eating a lot of ice cream because we were friends with people who owned an ice cream store. And they were so generous and so kind. And for our birthdays, and they always just, here, here's an ice cream gift certificate. Here, here, you go get some ice cream. And, but that wasn't the extent of it. In fact, uh, because Jenny and I were involved in youth ministry at the time, they were people who had a real heart for young people. And, and I remember that Tom and Christy both, uh, they would say, hey, what, what are you guys going on with the youth ministry? And we would say, oh, we're raising money for summer camp. Like students are raising, like we would sell you know, snow cones at, at church. They said, oh, oh, well, and they would just bring barrels of ice cream and just bring these barrels by. Like, where's, where's the fundraiser? We just all of a sudden barrels of, of ice cream. I didn't even know ice cream came in such vats. I mean, these things were enormous. And, and so these, these ice cream, and the students would sell the ice cream and, and make money for their summer camp. And, and, and then, you know, when we would have a, a student event or a student baptism, they had this big pool at their house, and they were constantly like, please come use our backyard, come use our house, do a leader's night, do a do student night. Constantly, so many of those memories were, were at Tom and Christy Willis's house where, where we were able to you know, have students there and discipleship events and, and the ice cream they provided. And I just got to thinking about Tom and Christy Willis this week because here, here they were successful in what they were doing and they were blessed as, as they lived, but they always made sure that what God blessed them with was a blessing to other people. And I just got to thinking, and this is really where we're going in this message this week, that if you're friends with God, the benefit of that friendship should not merely be felt by you, but it should be felt by people all around the world who are encouraged because of how you follow Jesus. Our friendship with God should have benefits for other people. Anybody with me on that? Friends with benefits. Abraham was friends with God. That, like, that, that's not from Abraham's mouth. That's from God's mouth. Every time Abraham pops up, God says, that's my friend. That's my guy. Abraham, my guy, right? And like in Isaiah chapter 41, God just casually refers to, to my servant Jacob, whom I'm chosen. Oh, he's the descendant of Abraham. Look at Isaiah 41, verse 8. Who's Abraham, my friend? My friend is Abraham. There he is. My friend. Abraham, oh, that guy, he's my friend. And so it's interesting to me, the person who more than any other in scripture is referred to as being God's friend, and that is probably the greatest compliment anybody could ever be paid. Just a friend of God. And by the way, if you feel like, how could I be friends with God? Just know this, one of the great nicknames of Jesus is the friend of sinners. So there's hope for all of us that we could be friends with God. 
And I really believe that the shift that we need to take, it's said a lot in, 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 in this church, but it's for a reason, is to shift from a religion mentality to a friendship mentality, that we would see ourselves as in a relationship with Jesus, friends with God. And so what does Abraham, the friend of God, do? Well, here in Genesis 18, I love that what he's doing is he's going to bat for other people. He's trying to benefit other people. His, the results of him having a friendship with God close enough to where God just casually cruises by his house for a bite to eat on the way to do this mission and to give a baby announcement out is that Abraham uses the opportunity. He takes advantage of this opportunity, you could say, to step in the gap for people that he doesn't even like, who have been nothing but unkind towards him and hostile towards his family and a bad influence on his family, a bad impact on his family as well. It's, in fact, his association with Sodom that does some of the most damaging things to Abraham's nephew Lot and Lot's entire family. And you're like, well, how bad could it be? Well, Genesis 13 says, and this is even two chapters before the judgment finally shows up, but the people of this area, this is Sodom and Gomorrah, were extremely wicked and constantly sinned against the Lord. Now, whatever level you think it is that caused there to finally be judgment triggered, it's worse. Okay? It's so bad that when these two angels finally get into the city, literally within minutes of being in the city, there are people trying to rape these two angels who have showed up here. Okay? So it is gnarly. It is bad. Whatever was going on, God had for years been working, years been working, and finally it had reached a tipping point. And so this wickedness had finally come. But what does the friend of God do? The friend of God steps out and says, is there anything we can do to avoid this judgment? Is there anything? His heart is to bring peace to the city. His heart is to see these here in the city not have their life ends. He's stepping out on behalf of people who are extremely wicked and constantly sinning against God. But someone who's God's friend, who knows his heart, is putting himself in the gap and interceding for these people. And six times doing everything he possibly can do to help them, to step out there for them. How could, how could anyone do such a thing for people who were so, so gnarly? Well, Abraham had discovered and tapped into what we need to discover, the secret to a good life, which starts with remembering that goodness is a byproduct, a byproduct. Write that down. That's how I want you to think about goodness. That's how I want you to frame goodness in your mind. It is an end. It is not a means. So goodness is a byproduct. Goodness is an outcome. Goodness is no longer, thank you, Jesus, for freeing us from goodness being criteria. When goodness is the criteria, you're constantly asking the question, am I good enough? Have I done enough? And every day you wake up uncertain. Did I do something wrong that's going to tip the balances against me? What a dreadful way to live to think that when you die and stand before God, you have to make sure that this side of the balance is up and this side is down. And always worry and always wonder, did I offset that, this bad thing, this over here, were my motives right? When goodness is the criteria, when goodness is the means, when goodness is how you somehow check a box and make God happy with you. You live in constant fear and constant dread. But Abraham had achieved goodness, not by his own doing. In fact, Genesis 15, verse 6 puts it this way. Abraham believed the Lord, 
And when he did, God credited it, God credited it, God credited it (laughs) to him as righteousness. When Abraham believed God. So God doesn't want you to do in order to be. He calls you to believe in order to receive. There's a big difference there. It's a God so loved the world, he gave his only son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have. That's a good thing to own. You got any everlasting life? Now I do. If I, if I received it by believing in Jesus, then I have eternal life. Then I have salvation. Abraham believed and received. So he was righteous with God. He was in a relationship with God. So he no longer has to do enough justice and love enough mercy and walk enough in humility. If you have to do that, then your goodness is your means to an end. It's the criteria that you're trying to achieve enough to to now be something. But once you believe it and receive it, you just get to walk with your good shepherd, because he has shown you what is good. And the only one is God. And so the amazing thing about that is then as you walk with Jesus, goodness becomes the byproduct. Goodness, we said last week, becomes the wake that the stern of your life leaves in the water as you follow your shepherd. And so you should look behind you as you follow. If you're doing it right, following Jesus as just a relationship, knowing him, walking with him, enjoying what he has done for you, you should look behind you and be able to see goodness and mercy following you all the days of your life. So doing justice and loving mercy, it's, of course, what we're going to see following Abraham's footsteps as he follows the one who is his friend, who is good. And that's exactly what we see here in Genesis 18. He's like, hey, man, to God, I know you're on the way to judgment, but just want to ask a favor. Could you spare them? Is there anything we can do? I'm putting myself out there. So what, what is he doing? He's, he's, he's loving mercy as he's doing justly, Abraham is. And we'll talk more next week about, about that third aspect, walking humbly. But here today, I want to focus on Abraham and what it looks like in his story to do justice and love mercy. Or if you write it down this way, here's how I think you should write it down. Doing justly, loving mercy, plus grace. Justice, mercy, and grace always go together. Let me just give you a quick definition. You should write these down. This is going to help you. Justice is getting what you deserve or doing what is right if you're doing justice, okay? Mercy is when you do not receive what you deserve. And then grace is when you receive what you do not deserve, all right? So those are good working definitions. You could, you could do better with a big theological dictionary, but that's the essence of it. And when it says in Micah 6a, and what it's showing here in Abraham's life, and if, you're, if you have a Bible that has little letters on the bottom of verses that show you cross-references, you will find Micah 6a references back to Genesis 18. Because when Micah says this, he has that in mind, that Abraham, as he's following Jesus, following the one who is good, the result is mercy, justice, and grace spill out of his life. Now, you're like, Levi, I don't see it. I only see do justly and love mercy. But the word mercy is the Hebrew word hesed. And the Hebrew word hesed is is imperfectly translated in many of our Bibles as mercy, Okay, In in some, if you have the NIV or if you have the NLT or other translations, you might see love. 
or you might see loving kindness, or you might see unfailing love. And some translations even say lavish, unfailing love. And you basically need all of those words to get the essence of what has said is, 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 is encompasses, because it's been rightly called a rainbow. The word has said is like a rainbow, because there's so many different colors in it. And no one English word is big enough for this amazing word has said. In fact, Hesed is not just what God does. Hesed is who he is. In, Genesis, in Exodus 34, when God said to Moses, who I am, here's who I am. One of the things he said is, I show Hesed to thousands. I show Hesed to thousands. And so what it essentially, I think, contains is mercy and grace in one word. Mercy, which we said a moment ago, is not receiving what you deserve. And grace, which is receiving something that you did not deserve, that's, God, that's God's hesed. And that's what Abraham's appealing to. On the basis of who God is, since you say you keep mercy for a thousands and grace to a thousands, you are hesed. So therefore, can, can we not see blessing come to the city that has deserved nothing but judgment? Now, here's what's interesting about me. Maybe you're like me. I'm really, 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 really good at wanting mercy for me. I very infrequently want justice for me. Like when I see red and blue lights in my rearview mirror. I don't go, God, this would be a great day for justice. I want justice to be served today. I'm like, dear Lord Jesus, please mercy, please mercy, please mercy, please mercy, please mercy, please mercy, right? And if the police officer comes up to the car when I have my hands on the steering wheel, which is always what you want to do, and says to me, you know, do you know why he pulled you over? And I've caught my breath enough to say, yes, officer, I do know why. Uh, I want him to say, I'm going to give you a warning today. If he gives me a, she gives me a warning today, I'm receiving mercy. I'm not receiving what I deserve. The just recompense of speeding is receiving a citation, a moving violation. If I get mercy, I'm so excited because I don't want what I deserve. Now, here's the interesting thing about me, and this might make you like me less, unless you can relate to me, in which case we can all just commiserate that we're all ridiculous. I usually want justice for other people. Anybody with me? quiet up in here, but here's the thing. <laughs> if I'm driving down the road, same road, where I saw the same officers, but instead of seeing them flashing in my rearview mirror, I see them in your rearview mirror because you're on the side of the road. I usually crane my neck a little bit to see the vagrant. <laughs> Anybody with me? Man, what hooligans there are in these parts, right? As I drive at the perfect speed limit because I had the chance to see you hopefully getting justice doled out on you. Am I the only one? You feel this little sense of, you know what? You did the crime. You can do the time. When you see someone else pulled over, not even from around here, a figures, right? Like, how pompous we become. How good at craving justice we become. I often love mercy when it's me who's in need of justice. But the switch happens as you follow your good shepherd, where now it's, it's, it's flipped a little bit because you start doing justly yourself more often, more of the time following Jesus, 
right? Like following Jesus isn't going to lead you to like cheat on something. Like Jesus, today's a great day to deceive. You know what I'm saying? Like, like as you follow Christ, hopefully that's going to lead to more of you doing justly. But the, the most beautiful thing starts to happen when you follow him and you, not, you, you notice his subtle movements, you start craving mercy for other people who are even in desperate need of some retribution and justice. But your inclination, as you get better at following him, is going to be more and more you're doing justly following him as, a, as an outcome, as a byproduct. But you're loving mercy and wanting said, wanting his grace and wanting his love to flow down like Abraham did here in this moment. Abraham followed Jesus, and he, he was incredibly honest. And I think it's a cool thing to just point out that, that following Christ should make us more honest people. Doing justly is, what's, is just doing what's right. There's a right and there's a wrong. And the Bible says that God hates the use of dishonest scales. This is an amazing verse. If you own a business, if you, if you are in business in any way, the Lord hates. This is Proverbs 11, verse 1. This should wake you up. The Lord hates, detests the use of dishonest scales. But he delights in accurate weights. What does that mean? That means that, that when you, you know, when you buy gas, and you pump a gallon of gas into your car, most of us never know whether that's accurate or not. But there's a little seal on it that's a department of weights and, and measurements. And someone at some point has come out to make sure that equipment is calibrated correctly so that when you pay for a gallon of gasoline, you are walking away with a gallon of gasoline. God hates it when in business, what is being advertised as you're getting a gallon is actually a, shy, a little bit shy of a gallon. And there's application of that to everything that we do. When we fill out our time card, when, when we're on the clock and we're using that time to, to do something that's actually not work-related, the, the point is God loves it when there's accurate weights that are used. When we're being honest, when we're, when we're being truthful. I, I paid for an hour of, of, uh, of, of time at this place, and I went over. And I'm going to tell you, hey, I, I actually used more time than I was going to. Can I pay the additional time? That's the, that's the honesty that God delights in. And I think the littler, the better when it comes to this kind of ethics, when it comes to this kind of integrity. Young people, listen to me. When it comes to when you're filling this out, that you tell the truth. And that's what it means as you follow your good shepherd to let that lead to doing justly in your life. That if you quote this for a job, that's what the quote is. If this is your bid, that's the bid. If this, this is what you said it's going to cost, that's what it's going to cost. And if, if, it, if it's less than that, and we're not going to pad it. We're not going to add stuff to the expenses. We're not going to put purchase orders in for things that weren't actually for that job. We're doing justly because God loves honest weights. Luke 16.10 says, if you're faithful in what is least, you can be faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least will also eventually be unjust in what is much. So if you're able to make small little white lies about this or this, this little untruth or this mostly is what this meant and, and this is what I said I was going to do, but you know what? It is what it is. And, and I'm able to drop you, right, the, the, because a better thing came along. That stuff's eventually going to hinder God from being able to do what he wants to do in your life. And I think right now at a moment when we're living a little bit, many of our, of our church cities are living in cities that are kind of boom town, when you can kind of in some ways cash in or do this, or you could, you could, you could make a lot of uh, unethical decisions for in, for in a moment that would you know, short circuit the integrity that God wants to build in your life. I think we all need to be careful of this, uh, that we all do what we say we will do. 
not as a means to make God love us, but as an outcome of following a shepherd who was crazy about us. And I think this kind of thing in our lives, listen to me, is either going to make the Jesus we profess with our lips extremely attractive or the opposite to a waiting, watching world. But nothing is so winsome in the eyes of those that we hope to impact with God's love, as that has said, as what Abraham, isn't it crazy to think that while the people of Sodom and Gomorrah are doing all the things they're doing, they have no idea, but there is someone on a hillside praying to God for them who is putting himself out there to the point of almost like comical offending God here, like, like to the point of like just almost being like, Abraham, back it down. Like this is God you're talking to, but he is, he is being so bold. I write that down. We should, as we follow Jesus in our, in, our, in our faith, there should be a boldness because this is what he wants. We should follow him boldly. Listen, God wanted Abraham to pray to him here. Why do you think he said to the two angels they were walking down the road, should I tell Abraham what we're about to do on this trip? He knows Abraham's right there. So Abraham's going to go, what are you doing on this trip? Actually, we're about to bring judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And of course, Abraham, God wants him to step out in faith. He wants him to challenge the goodness of God. He wants him to, to say, can we not do work here? Can, is there not even some people that it's worth fighting for the city? Is it not, it's not fully gone yet. Is it, you see, God, God wanted to arouse that said in Abraham's heart. And as we live that way, we give the, the world the best possible chance. It won't always work. We won't always be able to make the impact we want to make. And in this, this case, in this situation, try as... God wanted to, tries Abraham tried to, there was nothing that could be done for them. But this gives the best possible chance of people to make the right choice when it comes to God's love. In fact, Romans 2.4, please write this down if you have ever attempted to argue someone into believing, condemn someone into believing, judge them or scare them into believing. Romans 2.4, this has been at the heart of our ministry ever since we began Preaching, do you despise the riches of God's goodness, Romans 2.4, forbearance and longsuffering, here's the part, not knowing, notice, that it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance. No one has ever been scared out of hell. No one has ever been argued out of hell. No one has ever been condemned by enough religious people who are pointing their Ten Commandment-laden fingers to them in their face on the way to hell. Like, that just doesn't work. What does work? The goodness of God. The kind, that's, the, that's the same idea, the hesed of God. It's his loving kindness that leads us to repentance. So if we are God's people, it should be loving kindness that oozes out of our life, that we do justly for ourselves but we want mercy for other people. Anybody with me? I just think that makes our faith attractive. And notice this. This is, this is, this is huge. This is our birthright. This has said, doing justly, loving mercy is our birthright. I told you to underline it, but verse 19, God said, the way I'm going to get my plan done in the world that I promised to Abraham is through his children and his children's children and his children's children's children, instructing their kids now in the way that they should go. Before we can understand the full impact and import of that, I think we need to refresh ourselves on what were the promises that God made to Abram and Sarai originally. And they are articulated for us in Genesis 12, when Abraham was 
living in a strange land, just like those in Sodom and Gomorrah. He did not know God, did not love God, did not worship God, was living a life following pagan idols. And there God spoke to him, reached him, and through his hesed, through his loving kindness, he, he caused Abraham to see and feel that his whole life, what he had been looking for, was found in a relationship with his creator. And there he made promises to Abraham. Here, here they are, Genesis 12. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you and treat you with contempt. And this is so important to us to see today. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. Huge promises that involve a nation so that there could be a savior, so that there could be a people formed who then would have a heart to see God's said, God's mercy reach to everybody on earth, no matter who they are. So he was going to build a Jewish nation so that the gospel could, could be built up within the Jewish nation and then spill out to anybody, Jew, Greek, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, male, female, no matter who you were, the gospel was for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. The gospel was for whoever the they are to you, for everybody. Jesus came. OK, so Genesis 18, verse 19 becomes pretty huge then when he says, this is how I'm going to get that done. This is how I'm going to get families in the whole world blessed. I'm going to get it done through Abraham's descendants instructing their household. It's going to be through those who are related to Abraham. And you're like, oh, that's awesome to be Jewish then, because that's Abraham's household. Not so fast. Galatians helps us to see our connection to Abraham. Galatians 3, verse 29 says, and now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. Do you see it? You are his heirs. And God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. So your birthright, the incredible honor of following Jesus, is you're now connected to that incredible legacy, spilling all the way back to Genesis 12. But before that, going back to God's plan before he even created the world, how is he going to reconcile the world to himself? Households <laughs> instructing their children in doing justly, in loving mercy, in walking humbly before their God. It's this that will cause us to constantly walk around wanting the peace of God to be felt by people that are far from him. But here's the most incredible part. Our friendship with God, which benefits the waiting, watching world, also benefits us too. One of the key verses at the heart of our outreach program, which is Led, has led now to millions of dollars going out to nonprofits through outreach grants and thousands upon thousands upon thousands of hours of service. And that's just the beginning uh, to where we're going. It has come from Jeremiah 29, verse 7, which says, seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it. Notice, for in its peace, you will have peace. When you seek peace of a city that's not even yours. Sodom wasn't Abraham's city, but he was seeking peace for a city not his. That's us. Now you're going, hold on. Uh, Portland is my city, Levi. So like, is my city. I would say to you, if you are a Christian, 
Your city is the new Jerusalem. Your city is the capital of heaven. The city that is your citizenship attached to, that city is no longer on this earth. That city is, is, is one that's coming. Like Abraham, you wait for a city whose builder and maker is God. This life, this earth, presently as it now is, is a place where you are an ambassador of heaven. You live on this earth, but you are no longer of this earth. You have a different kingdom. You are not of this world. If you're following Christ, the Bible says you died. And when you die, death is a citizenship ending event. Abraham Lincoln is not a citizen of the US anymore. Death ended that. Your death, that's what baptism is, identifying with the death of Jesus, nullifies your citizenship to this world as being where your soul's attached. Now, I realize you still have a passport. I'm asking you to burn that, right? You, you kind of have dual citizenship. But your, where your true treasure should be where you see your true life as being should be in heaven. And while you're here, you're meant to be a, an, a, a part of the embassy. You're a one man, one woman walking around embassy. Wherever you go, heaven is. The kingdom of heaven is within. So you're attached to that in a more real way. And so you live in a city still. You still live in Billings. You still live in Helena. So what should your goal be? To seek the peace of the city that's not your city to seek God's blessing and his said, his mercy, his grace, and you doing justly personally, the way you conduct your business, it gets a reputation. Because it'll get a reputation either way. Cutting corners, over, over, under-promising, over-delivering. One of the two, right? That person does not show up, does not do what they say they would do, does not have a work ethic, dishonest, disloyal, jump ship at the first opportunity. That, that it's, you're going to get a reputation. But as we follow Jesus, I'm telling you, the way that we work, the way that we serve, our work ethic should cause people, even if they don't believe the way we believe, they want to be around us. They want to do business with us, because that person will get the job done, honey. You see what I'm saying? And so Abraham does this. Jeremiah says, we should do this. And he says, if we do this, we will have peace. That's the incredible part. We did some research this week on some of the impacts and effects that volunteering has on your well-being. It's incredible. You should Google it. Google, here you go, ready? Google impact of volunteering or community service on your health. You will find a treasure trove, more than you are, have bargained for, on how it will impact you, can lower your hypertension by as much as 40%, will help a high schooler get better grades, will help someone have lower rates of cortisol streaming to their system, which has been correlated by the Mayo Clinic to see something that narcissism brings into your system, leading to greater rates of uh, heart disease. And it's just unbelievable. Went down that rabbit trail. Thank you, Mickey. It was awesome. Uh, but, but here's the incredible thing. Long before Google told me that, Jesus did. He said, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. And we all know this. We all know it sh I should do good things. Why don't we do it? Here's where we're going to end. We're end because the biggest barrier to our being God's friends with benefits for the world is our busyness. Our busyness. That's our final point. A lot of us know we should do good in the world, but you know, I, I would love to serve this week. I'm too busy. I would love to make a difference in my community. I'm too busy. 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 Busyness is a choice. It's a mindset. Because you can only be in one place at one time. So multitasking, that's all an illusion. You just have to choose to invest your time. And Gallup, there's a Gallup poll that found that if you live a life where you choose to live in a perceived 
state of mind where you are too busy, that is as bad on your happiness as being unemployed. That chronically feeling and choosing to live a life busy, I'm not where I am. I always want to be everywhere else because I'm doing too too many things. That's worse for you than being unemployed on on your perceived sense of of happiness. But, But the point is that we are choosing either good or bad to invest our time. And if we choose to invest our time into the things that matter to the heart of God, we will benefit from it as well and see our cities impacted for the better. One of the most important things I ever learned about God, I learned at an ice cream store. I was probably six, and I deserved a spanking. I deserved a lot of spankings as a child. My dad used to give me, whenever I would finally get a spanking, the tipping point, you know, which was not a lot, but it, was, it would happen. He would sometimes give me one extra swat and say, that's for anything you've done this week that I did not know about. <laughs> and I could never really argue with it. <laughs> so one day, my sister and I and my brother had done something that definitely was going to get us a spanking. We all knew it. Bird seed was involved, and it was everywhere. <laughs> and it was one of those wait till your father gets home moments. And when my dad saw the bird seed, he just quietly said, everybody get in the car. Oh, God, he's going to kill us. <laughs> he's going to bury the bodies. And he took us to Baskin Robbins. And he sat us down at the table, right there with the ice cream in the background. And he said, I want to talk to you about three words, three really important words to know in life. He said, they're justice, they're mercy, and they're grace. And he defined them for us. I'll never forget. He said, Levi, Becca, Daniel, justice is when you get what you deserve. So today, me spanking you would be justice for what you did that I've told you clearly not to do. We couldn't argue with it. He said, mercy would be if I were to not spank you, not giving you what you deserve today. He said, but I want you all to go up to that counter and pick out ice cream. Because today, I want to teach you about something called grace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And that's what our God longs to give us. And so I pray today, if you've never made a decision for Christ, you would see and understand that, yes, God will judge. But he holds back his judgment because what he really wants to give you is grace. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to be a people mobilized for your purposes, with goodness streaming out of our lives, not to earn your favor or make you like us, but because you already do. And there's nothing we can do about it. And if you're here today and you would say, I want my life following my good shepherd to bring peace to the city I live in, help me to choose to spend my time well and to realize that being busy is a choice. If that's you and you're resonating with this vision, friends with benefits, could you just raise a hand up to God? He'll see you. This is some strategic shifts you're choosing to say I want to make in my schedule. It's my best yeses. Father, bless these. I know you will already as they seek to bless others. May goodness and mercy follow them all the days of their lives. You can put your hands down. If you're here and you need to give your heart to Jesus and surrender your soul to the one who loves you, who sent his son to die for you, 
and who when you die, you will stand before to give an account of your life. This is a space and time to say yes to him, to make him your king. So with heads bowed and eyes closed, I'm going to pray a simple prayer. And if you're ready to say yes to Jesus, I want you to pray it with me. Church family, pray it with us. Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. I'm lost. And I can't fix myself. So I invite you into my heart. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. Help me to follow you. In Jesus' name.